calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 9 Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. Chapter 12 Janice's blood was trained for war and conflict, not skulking the dark bowels of the earth. He was not a cutthroat or a sneak thief, stalking through the dark to slit throats and pilfer strong boxes. Steel against steel, muscle against muscle, will against will, those qualities had made him into the man he was, had given him the means to seize the title of Grand General and to hold it. He was not a religious man, but even he could feel the absence of the sun's countenance and warmth. These dark caves had never seen the light of the sun or the moon. They were dank, forbidding places, devoid of life or hope, places where men were not meant to walk. This domain belonged to Heck, the dark sister. As a boy, he had imagined that the underground led to Heck's torture chambers. He stopped again to listen but he heard nothing except sounds of dripping water in his own heart. The strange stone fangs springing from the floor and ceiling cast monstrous shadows in his lamp's feeble light, like netherworld spirits taunting him, cavorting in the unspaces he could not quite see, concealing the faceless conspirators. Damn it, man, get hold of yourself. If he died down here, Someone else would claim the epaulets of the Grand General, and Cusco would go on. He was well aware of history's implacable march. Some leaders mistook believing that the entire world, indeed civilization itself, would collapse if they died or fell from power, that they alone stood between order and anarchy. Not so. Those who remained would simply pick up and go on. Some things would change and some things would not. Cusca would go on without him, and he would be just a father who lost his daughter to the dark tide of politics and evil. 
Since he did not know these endless winding passages, he had been lost from the moment he set foot outside the finished walls of the underground. But these caves must open somewhere. The flickering of his lamp told him of the movement of air, and at times he caught the whiff of the sea. There was still the blood trail, even though it grew ever fainter. For hours Janus made his way through tunnels narrow and wide. At times he was forced to squeeze on his belly through tight, jagged slots. His face dripped with sweat in the cool moisture of the caverns. When he came to forks in the tunnels, he used the point of his sword to carve arrows in the soft limestone to indicate the direction he had taken. Three times now he had made loops and found himself at a fork he had already passed. His path took him downward, deeper into the cold, dark earth. He passed pools of water gathering below rivulets from the ceiling and walls. Thirst made itself known to him, but he ignored it for now, time enough to drink later. Strange how only a simple kidnapping was required to shake his authority. Perhaps it would be better for him if he had not loved Bella so. Perhaps if he could just forget her as if she did not matter. As if she was just another faceless victim amidst endless strife. Would that make him a better man? A new sound filtered through the rock, a deep rumble felt as much as heard. But not steady, surging. A cave-in? The noise waxed and waned, but did not cease. The sea, beating itself into foam against the rocks on the southern edge of the harbor. He stopped to sniff the air. Had it grown moister? He touched the wall and felt the dampness on his fingertips. Renewed vigor coursed through him as he realized the sound of the sea grew louder as he walked. His pistol grip was warm as his own flesh. He had carried the weapon for hours. The tension in his grip increased with every step as he moved toward the sound with faster steps but greater care. The passageway snaked and narrowed and undulated, but the noise grew louder until the passage yawned into a large chamber. The air in the chamber was cool and misty, and waves lapped against rocks and voices echoing from the lofty stone ceiling. He retraced his path and set down the lamp, not wishing to announce his presence with light in the darkness. He pulled his second pistol and proceeded into the blackness. The disappearance of the close echoing sound of his breath told him when he had left the tunnel and entered the cavern. His eyes adjusted to the darkness. A faint, wispy column of light painted a silvery spot on the cavern floor. Moonlight shone through a tiny opening in the rock, perhaps no larger than a fist, and turned the constant trickle of water from above into a string of falling pearls. The faint light silhouetted a large rock outcropping, and he slid silently alongside it. The glow of the tide pool, pale, faint light filtering up from below. The chamber was perhaps fifty paces across, seventy paces long, a rough oblong, with nearly half of the far end taken up by the lapping tide pool. Janice's hiding place lay perhaps thirty paces from the voices. He could not discern the exact shapes from shadows, but he believed he saw two or three men standing together. Two voices spoke in Farthy. He did not speak it fluently, but he knew enough to understand a simple conversation. At least it sounded like Farthy but he could understand precious little of this speech. The Farthy culture valued social hierarchy and conformance above all things, 
as proscribed by the tenets of their religion, and the establishment of social rank was built into their speech with varying degrees of honorific or humble speech. Superiors talked down to subordinates. Subordinates humbled themselves before their betters through words and actions, and the priest-kings spoke down to everyone except themselves. As Janus listened, he found the speech so full of honorifics that he could understand very little. The language sounded archaic. Boat. Master. Next. Sleeping. Kill. Alcott. Blood. It sounded like language read from the farthy holy Zaraf. Janus peered close to discern details about the men. Yes, there were definitely two of them. Their silhouettes stood clearly now against the pale swatch of seawater. In the coolness, he caught a whiff of sweat and realized he had perspired through his uniform. He had been wearing these clothes for more than a day. The fine wool jacket was sodden and smelly, and he imagined that the men would soon perceive his presence through stench alone, but he dared not remove it. Its dark blue would help conceal him. The white linen undershirt would announce his presence like a flare. Had he ever smelled this rancid before, even in the heat of summer and battle? His plan of action was simple. He needed information, so he dared not kill them both. He would watch, listen, attempt to determine the superior among the two, then kill the subordinate and disable the superior. He had the advantage of surprise. For several more minutes he listened to the two men speak, and he gained the impression that they were waiting for the low tide, whereupon they would take their small boat, which was moored to an outcropping at the edge of the tide pool, and exit into the harbor through the passage that was now filled with seawater. One of the men appeared to be favoring an arm. The spot of moon brightness crept across the floor as Inanan made her track across the heavens. The men sat on the rocks near the water's edge, and the conversation ebbed. The wounded one leaned back to lie against a large stone, using it for a pillow. They looked relaxed, inattentive, simply waiting for their chance to complete their escape. Janus slid around the rock, taking care to place each step soundlessly, moving closer to them to ensure clean, deadly shooting. No warning, no mercy. These men had just slaughtered eight people and were doubtless involved with those who kidnapped his daughter. Fifteen paces away, well within easy range, if they had been in daylight. But in darkness? Just a few steps more. One man sat with his back to Janus, the other lying down. The seated man was a clean body shot. He raised the pistol, leveled it between the man's shoulder blades, and stopped. The muzzle flash would destroy his night vision, and he might miss the second shot. He raised the second pistol, pointing toward the lying man's belly. He took a deep, slow breath and squeezed both triggers. The twin orange flashes of fire and sparks blinded him, pasting blue-green swaths of color into his vision. He thought he saw the seated man crumple forward. He heard the sounds of a man in agony with a belly wound. He holstered his pistols and pulled his broadsword. A dark shape floated in the water with a dark, swirling miasma spreading around the body. The other lay squirming, writhing into a ball like an injured worm, groaning, gurgling. Janus stood over him and placed the point of his steel against the man's throat. Do not move. At that moment, 
Janice caught another strong whiff of rancid sweat and realized that it had wafted from behind him. An arm snaked across his throat, jerked his head back, and he caught the glimmer of steel as it moved across his throat. He spun and slashed. He felt the slightest tug against his flesh. Wet warmth poured down his chest. He clamped his left hand to the wound. Slick, sticky blood trickled between his fingers. Warrior's fire roared within his veins and his vision misted red. He spung with the broadsword, slashing a lethal arc that ended with a wet, satisfying crunch. The attacker's body fell, and something splattered across the cave floor. Janus gasped for breath and tasted blood in his mouth. His breath whistled through the front of his throat, cool on the lips of the cut, between his fingers. The sleeve and breast of his jacket was sodden with blood. He yanked out a handkerchief and clamped it over the wound. He tore off the longest gold braids from his shoulder and used them to tie the cloth in place around his neck. He would lose consciousness soon, and when he did, his hand would fall away and he would bleed out like a butchered bock. He sank to his knees, curses of helpless disappointment grating between his teeth. What a waste! Slain by an assassin in a cave where he would never be found. Ah, well, he could imagine worse ends. He sat down and leaned against a cool, wet stone, looking down into the lapping water. Soon it would brighten even more with the coming of dawn. As he tied the braids over his makeshift bandage, he thought of Lilla, cold and fiery, passionate and calculating by turns, a loving, kind, brutal source of mystery and fascination. A religious man would have believed that he would see her soon in the halls of valor, but he was not so certain. Those old legends had fired his imagination as a young boy, a young fighter, but now he would be happy with just darkness, nothingness. It all fell to Javin and Rusk now. He hoped the boy was ready. The sound of the water faded, the whimper of the wounded assassin died away, and the light of Helian's emerging face turned the water into a deep, glowing aqua. So beautiful, the sea. Chapter 13 Javin's chest burned, his boots were made of lead, and his clothes weighed him down like sodden sacks of wet gruel. His knees wobbled like noodles, and his wounded shoulder was a throbbing slash of acid. He stopped running for a moment and leaned against a boulder beside the mountain path. The persistent patter of rain on the rocks and the splash of mud were all but drowned by his galloping heart and heaving breath. Rainwater filled his boots and loaded them with great unwieldy gobbets of sticky red-gray mud. Water poured in runnels down the path in narrow streams and broad sheets. He looked behind him, and his head swam for a moment as he gasped for breath. It seemed he had made no progress at all. Had he come only one league from Norvan? He could just see its dark outline through the veil of rain. He looked up the mountain into the infinite black distance he still had to run. A stab of despair shot through him. He was not going to make it before sunrise. By Helion, he would be lucky to arrive before noon. Rusk was a madman. No one could run such a distance. He wanted to stop. He wanted to breathe, to sleep. But he could not. The last day and night had been the worst of his entire life. 
A mere day ago he had had to stand before his father and tell him of Bella's abduction. His throat felt like tree bark, and the formerly pleasant ale in his belly had soured. Thank Enanan for small kindnesses, but he was thirsty. He leaned into a small sluicing waterfall at the side of the path and opened his mouth, gulping at the cold fresh water. If the ale had tasted good before, this water was the nectar of the gods, and it flowed like liquid relief through his limbs. He stripped off his rain-sodden jacket, amazed at its weight. Its dark blue color looked black now, but the cold braids and epaulettes still traced their glittering outlines along the shoulders and arms. He laid the jacket on the boulder, spreading it carefully so that it would not slide off into the mud and go washing down the mountain in a mudslide. Shedding the extra weight lent the illusion of fresh strength. The sash was wadded up in his trouser pocket like a sponge. So much effort for such a little thing. The woman had gone mad and tried to kill him. All over a mere sash. He thought over the chain of events that had brought him to his misery. It all led back to the same place. Bella. He cursed her half-heartedly. Damn her for making him play with her. Damn her for making him see those wonderful plays. Damn her for her musical laugh and her sparkling spirit. Damn her for the flowers and the music and the games and the way she looked up to him. And for the way she looked so much like their mother. And damn, damn, damn the men who took her to a thousand snarling, searing tortures. He took one last deep breath and resumed running. He dared not try running through the forest at night, much less in the rain. It had been treacherous, even dry, and in daylight. The rain's intensity felt like Inanan's chill breath and tears, rising and falling until it all but disappeared, then surging again with fresh strength and fat, splattering drops. He could not stop. No matter how heavy his boots became, no matter how painful his breath, no matter how far he had yet to go, he stopped thinking about his body. He simply ignored it, and his thoughts retreated inward as he let his legs run and his arms pump and his breath heave. He ignored the rain and the dark, pushed the pain from his mind, and thought about the satisfaction that he would feel when he presented the sash to Rusk. That unwashed ruffian had no respect for Javin or his station, but this would show him the grit that made a woolstone. Farther up the path, the glow of Inanan's face through the clouds in the distant west. Soon it would be morning. Did he have time? He had climbed halfway up the mountainside now, perhaps a league and a half yet to run. If he could just keep going, he would be there by daybreak, but he had to run. Through pain and rain and a madwoman, an alluring, fascinating madwoman to be sure, he had come too far to give up now. Just keep going. He glimpsed a stone, only a split heartbeat, before it struck him in the forehead. Just a dim, gray, roundish blur flying out of the darkness and then the sun exploded in his brain. The cold, squishy mud soaked Javin's back, clung to his hair, and he stared up into the endless rain and black tumult. 
His head was agony. He did not know how long he lay there like a discarded rag doll, swimming in a lake of pain before he reached up and felt the egg growing out of his forehead like a second skull. His arms collapsed at his sides like rags. The clouds grew blacker above him, brightened, blackened. Or perhaps he was just losing consciousness. A dim shape knelt over him, a dark face, rain dripping from long, dark hair. "'Are you alive?' a voice said. Javin made a sound to indicate that he was. Can you move? Javin made a sound and moved his arm to indicate that possibility. The figure helped him into a sitting position. You're hurt. A stone. Someone hit me. A wave of nausea washed through him as he leaned forward. Rain and blood dripped from his nose, from his eyebrows. He turned his face toward the figure and tried to focus. It was Tonin. What? What are you? Was it the other man? What? What other man? The third one. Maggot. Javin's vision swam. Did Maggot do this to you? Don't know. Come, try to stand. Tonin took Javin's arm, wrapped it over his shoulder. Javin's knees were weak, but he fought back the dizziness and tried to gather himself. Didn't see. Just a stone. I've been trying to track you, but you lost me in the forest last night. Why? Partnership. I thought we would have a better chance of success if we worked together. Isn't that against the rules? Come, try to walk. Remember what Rusk said? No rules. Javin took a few tentative steps. Yesterday, Tonin continued, I set off with Maggot. As we ran down the mountain together, he grew tired. He said he wanted to rest. He told me to go on without him. The clouds were beginning to lighten across the mountains above. So I did, and I never saw him after that. I didn't trust him. I just ran toward Norvan, trying to find you. Come, we must keep going. Shall I carry you? I can walk. Good. So I came upon your trail through the forest, saw your footprints at one point where you crossed the road, but then I lost them in the dark, and by the time I reached Norvan the gates were closed. I spoke to the guards and guessed that you had been there before me, long before. I got inside through a sewer grate. I found the sign with the red-sashed woman, but the doorman nearly killed me. He said a thief had already stolen it. The place was in an uproar, so I decided to find you. As Javin listened, he had the distinct impression that these were the most words Tonin had spoken in a row in his entire life. Why? You have the sash. My purpose is to join the Black Furies. Do you still have the sash? Javin patted his pocket, and his knees went weak again. It's gone. Tonin nodded. We'll never catch him. Perhaps we will. It's still over a league to the top. After a few minutes, Javin could walk on his own. A few minutes more, and he could run again, even though each step triggered a sledgehammer inside his skull. The rain dissipated, and the sky began to brighten with coming dawn. He did not think. He just took one step after another, in endless succession. Javin knew he was holding Tonin back, but neither of them had the sash. Of course, Rusk would have to listen to them. Javin was a gentleman. His word was his bond, and Tonin would back up his account of Maggot's treachery. Rusk would have to accept their tale. It was the truth. They just needed to reach the top and then he would call Maggot out and thrash him within a dram of his life. As the sky continued to brighten into gray, 
Javin cocked his ear and stopped. What is that? Singing. In the distance, coming around the next bend up the path, a group of men ran in formation, in step. They sang a cadence in rhythm with their steps. In the middle of the night, in the drizzle and rain, we pack our gear and we run to the plain. Our mission is hot and our face is unknown. We don't know if we'll ever come home. Hoo-ya! One, two. Hoo-ya! Kill two. Hoo-ya! Three, four. Hoo-ya! Kill more. The volume of the chant increased as the formation approached. Javin spotted Carl leading the group of almost twenty men, shouting out the cadence. Javin and Tonin stopped to stare. It was like a synchronized dance of muscle and sinew. The men wore only their trousers, bare-chested and thick-armed. They were some of the hardest men he had ever seen. Grim-faced, but when their mouths were open in the chant, there was a ferocity, a cohesion, a union that went beyond words. As a soldier, Javin recognized it, but he had never seen its like. The group drew near, and Javin raised his hand to speak to Carl. Sir, I... But the man marched past, chanting, as if Javin was not there. Javin could only stand in slack-jawed stupefaction as the backs of the Black Furies marched away at double speed down the muddy mountain path. Tonin shrugged. Javin shook his head. He had never felt so weary. Every step began to feel like salvation as he could see that the entrance to the compound was only one more bend in the path, only a few hundred paces. Surely even a man like Rusk could see reason. Surely Javin had passed the test after everything he had done. He would even vouch for Tonin as well. He just wished that it would all be over soon so he could rest. Yes, he could see the end, only a few steps more, just a few, just few. Yes, surely even Rusk could see reason. You failed, Rusk said, standing before them like an obelisk, a boulder, a continent. The man who brought me the sash is now officially a codsucker in training. You two can rest for a few hours before you clear out. There's breakfast in the main hall. Javin thought vaguely that he should feel rage, not despair, but he wanted only to pull his pistol and shoot himself in the head. But his pistol was gone. Sasha had kicked it out of his hand and he had left it behind. Rusk's face was carved of granite, his eyes chips of dark flint, unreadable. The only word Javin could muster was, Why? Because you failed. Those simple words brought the rush of anger Javin had been expecting. But I had the sash. He ambushed me. Stole it. Rusk was calm and implacable, almost serene. Lord Codsucker Wollstone, do you remember any fucking thing I said? Of course, I, I said there are no fucking rules. This is not a gentleman's contest. There is only succeed or fail. You did not bring the sash. Someone else did. The three of you could have brought it in together, but rare is the group of retarded codsuckers able to cipher that one out. Codsucker Maggot, on the other hand, did the unexpected. He cheated. He improvised. He almost murdered me. 
you're standing before me, I see, in the furies, almost counts as much as a pile of bock turds. Perhaps you should have been more alert. It didn't even occur to you that one of these inbreds would let you do all the work? War is not a gentleman's contest. Codsucker Wollstone, I have to go back to Norgard this morning. You can go back to your daddy. You tried. You really, truly did. But it wasn't enough. You don't have what it takes to be here. With that, Rusk turned on his heel and left the meeting chamber, leaving Javan amidst his wreckage. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.